I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hello, my name is Anne Foster, and this is the Vulgar History Podcast. This is a feminist women's history comedy slash storytelling podcast. And today I'm really excited about the woman who I'm going to talk to you about not just because there's going to be an unexpected crossover moment with a previous person who we've talked about on this podcast, but just because this is a woman who so much exemplifies what we've been looking at all season long, which has been the phrase that's become an aphorism, really, which is that well-behaved women seldom make history, which is, as I've discussed in the other podcasts, but maybe you haven't heard them or just you, you could use a reminder. The historian Dr. Laurel Thatcher Ulrich said this statement in a paper she was writing about Puritan burial rituals or something like that in the 1970s. And instantaneously, it became just sort of a catchphrase for women's history in general. And what she was saying, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, is basically there's been so many people through all of history, all different genders, who we don't know about for various reasons, because of their marginalizations, um, because of who is in power and who is writing things down. But in the the Western canon of history, which is what I've been researching mostly to this point, women show up far less than men do. And that is because it was societally the expectation that women would be, quote unquote, well-behaved and just kind of stay at home and run the household, which was a big job. And people knew it was a big job and you got trained up to do it. That's what you're doing if you were a rich and powerful woman. And if you were a less powerful woman, then you were just working all the time and raising children. And basically, 
to be a good woman in this time and place, and the time and place we're looking at today is 17th century England, meant that the greatest thing you could do is for no one to write about you when you were alive and for no one to write about you after you had died because you were just like so well behaved. You didn't make a ripple in anything, which means that the women who we know about tend to be the ones who did not behave. I mean, quote unquote, behave, which is what we've been looking at for the past five episodes and for today's episode as well. And we are going to be talking about a woman who was born Lucy Percy, who got married and then she became known as Lucy Hay, the Countess of Carlisle. And she was a spy, not just a spy, a lady spy. What is the distinction I'm making there between the word spy and lady spy? Nothing really other than just to say that I think it's worth noting that she was a spy who was a woman. We tend to hear a lot more about man spies and I'm happy to talk about a lady spy. She's also literally a lady with the whole family pedigree, etc. And I'm so excited to do this as a podcast, especially there's several moments here that are going to cross over with characters who we know from previous episodes of this podcast slash people from history in what I'm starting to think of as like the Tudor slash Stuart England expanded cinematic universe. I'm so excited when two people or more than two people suddenly reoccur in other people's stories. I'm like, they were alive at the same time and place. Mind blowing to me. And there's some great moments like that in her story because she really bridges a bunch of eras that we've looked at a bit so far in this podcast. And she's just sort of like on the forefront being amazing throughout all of it. One of the things that strikes me about the story of Lucy Percy Hay is that she was really just like the right person born at the right time to do so much interesting, amazing stuff. To her, she might think like, Ooh, this is like, you know, there's that, that other aphorism that's like, may you live in interesting times. And that's like a curse because when things are interesting, that also means it's chaotic and a mess and it's really stressful. This is where I think she was born at the right place, right time. Like, even if she was like, this is a bit much for me, like spoiler at one of the, one of the points where she is in the tower of London, she might've thought like, okay, this is a bit much, but frankly, I think the amount of chaos surrounding her was like perfect because it allowed her to just thrive in this amazing way. So to really set the scene of what she was born into, we need to go back ways to an incident that I am not going to get into in any great detail, but it's the gunpowder plot. So the gunpowder plot was a thing that happened in 1605. And just to be super quick about it, because this isn't, this is just some background. This isn't the actual story of Lucy, but it's important background stuff. Effectively, a group of people involving a person named Guy Fawkes decided that they wanted to explode the houses of parliament and kill the king. And the king at the time was James I, James I being the son of Mary, Queen of Scots. And so what the gunpowder treason plot people wanted to do is to blow him up because they didn't want him to be king anymore. They didn't like him. They also planned to kill his son, the Prince of Wales, who's going to be the next king, which was Prince Henry. And then their plan was to take James's nine-year-old daughter, Elizabeth, and make her the new queen. But she would be like a puppet 
and the conspirators would sort of be the ones in charge in a parliamentary sort of setting. And they chose Elizabeth, who was nine years old, despite the fact that there was also a younger son. So they wanted to get rid of Prince Henry because they thought he would probably fight back too much. He wouldn't be a good puppet. Choose the younger brother, even though usually, you know, in this situation, boys became kings before girls became queens. Because little baby Charles was just a little toddler who just learned how to walk. And because Elizabeth, who 100% I'm going to do an episode about at some point later in the future, was just like really poised and had already done some events where everyone was like impressed with how much she seemed like a little mini queen, even though she was nine years old. The plan didn't work. They did not explode the Houses of Parliament. All the people who were involved were arrested and mostly executed. And one of the conspirators who was implicated but not killed, was the father of Lucy Percy, who is a man named Henry Percy, the ninth Earl of Northumberland. So his thing is, he's got a lot of things going on. Firstly, he was known as the Wizard Earl because he did a lot of science experiments and was just a weirdo. So Dorothy and Lucy were both already born when the whole gunpowder scenario happened. Lucy, who's our main character today, so she's born probably around 1600, so like five years before the gunpowder plot. She has a slightly older sister, Dorothy, who was born probably a year or two earlier. And I mentioned Dorothy as well, because the two girls were, they weren't twins, but they were so close in age and their lives were really, really connected all the time. And there really is sort of like Jessica Elizabeth Wakefield situation where Dorothy was very much the sort of like quiet, nice person who kind of the well-behaved and Lucy was just sort of like this 17th century Jessica Wakefield type person who I'm so excited to tell you about. But basically there were these two girls. They also had two younger brothers whose names were Algernon and Henry. But basically in the year 1605, Gunpowder plot happened. Their father was involved in it. But the thing is that he wasn't directly involved in it. So he knew he was charged with knowing about it and not notifying the authorities, but not of actually having done anything. So he wasn't executed. Instead, he was sent to live in the Tower of London, where he was put in jail for 16 years. And he was really rich. This is a sort of situation where we've had a couple people like this in the podcast before, where you're a rich person and you're in the Tower of London. It's not like, oh no, I'm in a jail cell and this is miserable and horrible. It's more like, okay, I'm rich, I'm in the Tower of London. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pay off all the guards. I'm going to build this all up so it'll be like this luxury apartment for myself. I'm going to have servants. I get to go stroll around the grounds every day. And he's the wizard Earl. So he's like also doing his science experiments, etc. So this is the situation. He's off being the Tower of London, just kind of, I don't know, like living his best life. Meanwhile, his four children, so the two daughters, Lucy and Dorothy, and their brothers, Algernon and Henry, are off sort of, you know, being raised by effectively a single mother. Their mother's name, also Dorothy. Oh, side note. So their mother is Dorothy Devereaux, who I need to, just so we get the lineage straight here, was the daughter of Latisse Knowles, great grand nieces of Anne Boleyn. And so there's some 
this family, just like every family, sort of like, again, to take it back to Sweet Valley High, if you've read or are familiar with the Sweet Valley High sagas, which are these amazing books I loved when I was a kid, I recommend them heartily to you now. I'll put a link in the show notes. But basically, there are books about how every generation, there are basically these two twins who are sort of like Jessica and Elizabeth. And it's like, what were they like in the Roaring Twenties? What were they like during the Great Fire of San Francisco? Just every generation, the same situations kept coming up time after time, and they kept not working out right, or whatever. Sometimes they did. In the Anne Boleyn family lineage, it's like every generation, there was some sort of Anne Boleyn type person who was just like amazing and took the world by storm. And in this generation, that person was Lucy. So her father is in jail. Lucy and her siblings are just kind of being raised basically free range, which was the style at the time. If you were rich, you just sort of like let your children, they go to classes and stuff, but their mother wasn't like hands-on with them or whatever. And also the thing is that her parents did not like each other very much because the wizard Earl was, as it turns out, a nightmare person. And so his wife, Dorothy, she was kind of better off without him, basically. Like she half-heartedly would sometimes like write some appeals to the to the monarch being like, mm, can you maybe let him out of jail or whatever? But she didn't, she was kind of better off without him. The two of them were were just sort of really the situation worked well for them, basically. And so Lucy and Dorothy would go to visit their father sometimes in the Tower of London slash his luxury apartments he had made for himself there. And this is kind of what was going on in the world for the first part of everybody's lives. So the thing is that Lucy and Dorothy were sent to court to be, uh, you know, presented as young, eligible young women. And the thing is, they were both gorgeous. Like sometimes you hear that about people from history and you look up their portraits and without the context of their personality or their charisma, you're like, okay, sure. But like with Lucy and Dorothy, especially with Lucy, you're just like, oh man, like she is gorgeous. And so she totally took everybody by storm. They're all just like, who is this woman? She's amazing. She's 18 years old. We all adore her. She was like immediately sort of the queen bee. And she fell in love with a man whose name was James Hay, who is older than her, but was also like super stylish. He was like, he would wear the most interesting outfits. And this was a time when both men and women just wore like huge balloon sleeves, like lots of colorful things. He was just this fashion plate, like super popular guy. She was this gorgeous 18 year old woman and they fell in love and she decided she wanted to get married. And her mother was like, sure, whatever, because whatever, but she needed to get her father's permission. So meanwhile, Dorothy also had a man who she wanted to marry both. No, I think Dorothy actually had married someone. So Lucy and Dorothy went to their father to just be like, surprise. And the wizard Earl was not a fan of what was going on. I mean, Dorothy had already gotten married, so he couldn't really do anything about that. But Lucy, he was just like, Ugh, I don't want her to marry a Scottish person because he was racist against Scottish people. There's a quote where he said, I cannot endure that my daughter should dance any Scottish jig. And also he just didn't like her choosing her own husband, etc. So while they were visiting, he's like, great, Dorothy, can you just like step outside for a minute? And Dorothy did. And then the wizard Earl was like, ha ha. And then he just like grabbed Lucy and kept her and made her stay with him in the Tower of London. Sort of a prisoner 
she hadn't been arrested for anything, but basically he just wouldn't let her leave and he was bribing all of the guards. And so she was basically trapped there with him. But get ready for this, because do you know who else was in the Tower of London at this exact same time? Was Francis Howard. Tits out Francis Howard, yes, from episode two of this very podcast, the uh, confessed murderess, the woman who faked her hymen virginity test when she was trying to get extricate herself from this marriage she didn't want to be in anymore, the woman who assembled a team of like six people to murder a man who were getting in the way of her marrying another man, Francis Howard, necklines to her waist. She's in the Tower of London at the same time. When I read that, I was just like, what is happening? So the Wizard Earl is in the Tower of London being rich. Francis Howard, also in the Tower of London being rich. They're both just basically living in like luxury apartments. They're like roommates. They're not roommates. They're like neighbors in the Tower of London. And the Wizard Earl was like, you know what? Francis Howard is like such a sophisticated, gorgeous, interesting person. I like her so much. Like he would write letters to his wife being like, you know, who's great? Frances Howard, this woman who is in jail with me. She confessed to murder. I really admire her. So when Lucy was there, 18 years old, and the wizard Earl was like, okay, I really want my daughter to like stop being so headstrong and like become like a better, more fancy person. You know who she needs as a mentor is Frances Howard. He got Lucy to spend time with tits out Frances Howard because he thought Francis would be a good influence on her, which is just like, great. This is like passing of the torch from like one it girl to the next. So Francis Howard wasn't like, oh, Lucy, here's like the rules of society and here's how to be well-behaved because that is not the tits out lifestyle that we know and love her for. Instead, what Francis Howard did was she was like, Lucy, why don't you come here? Like she learned about Lucy and how she wanted to marry James Hay. And so Francis Howard would invite Lucy to stay with her at her apartment in jail because it, jail apartments. And they would invite um, Lucy's boyfriend over and the two of them could like make out or whatever. And Francis Howard was like their fairy godmother. It was, oh my God, I love it. So eventually Lucy was allowed to leave jail having now learned like from Francis Howard just all the skills of how to be like the most amazing person in the world. And basically, and so Lucy left jail and she married James Hay. Ta-da. She probably danced a Scottish jig, probably screaming, screw you, dad. And instead of just being the daughter of this disgraced gunpowder plot person, she was this fancy lady. And so everybody loved her even more for this. The two of them, they wore these amazing outfits, like flamboyant, gorgeous. Her personality was written about as much as her immense beauty. She was like sassy, sarcastic, just like living it up. James Hay was like the most dapper of all the men there. Like everybody just worshiped them. At this point, uh, the king had, he really liked Lucy's husband, James Hay. And so James Hay got the job of groom of the stool, which sounds like not a great job, but in fact is a great job. Because the groom of the stool means to be, you're alone with the king, like you're the most trusted advisor. You're with the king when he's at his most vulnerable, e.g. when he's on the toilet. And so only the person who the king likes the best gets to be there. And that's where you get to talk to him and no one else is there to like have their point of view as well. The king was so pleased with James as his servant that five years after the two, after James and Lucy got married, he made James the Earl of Carlisle, which made Lucy a countess. 
So James was super good, um, not just at wearing amazing outfits, but also at diplomacy and politics stuff. And Lucy was just like the shining bright star of, of everything. Everybody just like worshipped and adored her because she was so smart and so witty and she was so immensely beautiful. Literally every poet and musician she ever met decided, like declared her their muse. And so they all wrote poems and or painted images in tribute to her. At one point, uh, Lucy contracted smallpox. And I want to mention at this point too, that it seems like Lucy had some ongoing medical concerns. And they're the sort of things that today, potentially, uh, physicians might not be able to say, what all was going on with her but back then especially they weren't so there's some one biography i read suggested that she had like quote-unquote hypochondria which just is like like if you think you're sick if you're having symptoms like don't call it hypochondria especially with a woman like back then women women's medical concerns weren't understood at all psychological things weren't understood at all like she was clearly having some she had ongoing um, chronic illness of some sort in her life. And then at one point this turned into, or it didn't turn into, but she also got smallpox. And so she was gorgeous. She knew she was gorgeous. Being gorgeous was like a main part of her personality. And so she freaked out that she was going to lose her looks and everybody else freaked out she was going to lose her looks. And so she started wearing a mask uh, to cover while she was still healing and then she was really scared to take off the mask because she thought everyone would be grossed out by her because she might be slightly less beautiful. And so this sort of became a fashion trend, I think. Like she was wearing the mask to hide the scars and then other people started wearing masks too so she wouldn't feel weird about it. Like in that scene from Mean Girls where Katie cuts out the holes in Regina George's uh, shirt and then Regina George starts just wearing a shirt with holes and then everybody wears a shirt with holes. Like Lucy was so, she was an influencer basically. And, you know, much to the relief of all of her fans, when she finally took the mask off, guess what? Just as beautiful as before, not disfigured at all. So in 1625, which is, so Lucy herself is 25 years old now, King James I died. And if you remember from the gunpowder plot, uh, the whole thing was they wanted to kill the king and then kill his son and then make Elizabeth the queen and meanwhile, toddling around was little baby Prince Charles. But what had happened is that in the meantime here, uh, Prince Henry had died. Um, girls don't take over thrones before boys in this situation. And so the new king unexpectedly was Charles, who became known as Charles I. And so Charles I, so new younger king, he was a big fan of Lucy and James because everybody was because they were like the it couple of the world. He was also indebted to them because James had been part of the negotiating team that had arranged the king's, King Charles I's marriage to a French princess named Henrietta Maria. So there was an overall change of staff when it went from King James I to King Charles I. And one of the only people that carried over from one king to the other was a man named George Villiers, who was one of King James's lovers, probably like sort of his final lover after the whole Robert Carr situation ended with murder in jail. George Villiers was this. So again, it's the sort of person who um, you hear like, oh, he was so good looking. And you're like, eh, look up a portrait 
and you see it's like a guy in a wig and you're like, I guess. I forgot in a wig. He looks okay. George Villiers, the first Duke of Buckingham, super handsome looking. I say that objectively because he was a horrific monster garbage person. He was um, awful. He was the worst. He was horrifying. Um, and he was a lover of King James I, allegedly. And then even though most of the other advisors sort of like were swept away, he stuck around because he had sucked up enough to King Charles I that he became King Charles I's advisor as well. So George Villiers, the uh, Duke of Buckingham, is one of those guys. He got the title because he, the king just liked him enough. He was like, guess what? I'm giving you a title. Hooray. Everything's amazing. Okay. So he's the sort of guy, George Villiers, first Duke of Buckingham, who would be like, not just like a womanizer, but basically serial rapist situation where he would find a woman who he thought looked pretty or whatever, or who he wanted or whatever. And so he would go to her house and then bribe all her servants to go away and his servants would stick around and then he would basically rape her and then sometimes make her be his mistress was kind of his mo this is what he did and so lucy hayes husband james was sent away to be like an ambassador somewhere he was sent out of town and while he was out of town george villiers was like oh she's like the most gorgeous beautiful woman here she's like amazing and the two of them become involved and so i don't want to necessarily say that this was against Lucy's will, but also did she consent to this? It's a big old gray area, but basically what happens is the two of them become involved for several years. Buckingham is so powerful at this point, George Villiers, AKA Buckingham. Side note, this is what makes it so challenging to me personally to read the books about this because everybody has a name, a last name, and then also a title. And you need to remember not just the person's name, but also their title. Anyway, George Villiers, Duke of Buckingham, was the most powerful person other than the king, basically, because he was so slimy. Like, again, it's just like a little finger scenario. He's like a more powerful, grosser little finger. I can't believe that in the course of doing these stories, little finger is like the least gross option. Anyway, so... He convinced the king to send James Hay away so that Lucy Hay would be on her own. And then they became involved. And so this could be a situation where Lucy was like, I see how this could be good for me. And she's into it. It could be a situation where Lucy is like, well, this is happening. Might as well make the best of it. I'm not sure. But basically, the two of them become involved. And because of their involvement, Lucy gets some benefits to her uh, personal life. So she became named Lady of the Bedchamber to the Queen Henrietta Maria. And this is like the woman version of Groom of the Stool. So it's basically the highest role a woman could have at court. And uh, Lucy and Henrietta Maria did not always see eye to eye, but they became quite, quite close. And so... George wasn't just like doing a solid favor for this woman who he had forced to become his mistress or who had wanted to become his mistress, the woman who was his mistress. And now we're just going to take a break for a word from our sponsors. 
Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. So the thing is, I have allergies. My nose gets stuffy. I get sort of sinus congestion, and it just really can sometimes get in the way of doing things I really want to be doing, like recording this podcast, for instance. But you might have noticed that when you're listening to this podcast, you never hear me sounding like a duck or uh, with a runny nose. I'm never wiping my nose or stuff on the microphone. And that's because luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. So I've been taking Claritin D for my allergies, and the thing is, when I'm using it, you won't even know that I have allergies. My voice sounds so crystal clear when I'm recording and when you're listening to me right now, but also when I'm not doing podcasts, when I'm doing other life-related things, like just going about my day-to-day life, like sitting on the bus or going to work or whatever, going to the movie theaters. I don't have to worry about like, do I have tissues with me? Do I have a handkerchief? Is this noise bothering everybody? Am I being gross? Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. And we're back. George basically wanted to put her there because that meant that Lucy could keep an eye on the queen and then Lucy could report back to him. So he, George, would know what was going on so he could like scheme better. But the thing is that Henrietta Maria, the queen, was like, she was no fool. She could see what was going on because part of what was going on was also that George Villiers was likely setting up Lucy to become the mistress of Charles I and Henrietta Maria didn't want that. She didn't want to be friends with a woman who's going to, who's basically being sort of like sex trafficked to her husband. Like the whole thing is just like, if we're just like, see this all as like a snow globe of just everyone is terrible and sort of using each other horribly, but they're all stuck in the snow globe and you have to make do they're all kind of doing the best they can, except for George Villiers, who's just a gross old monster. So Henrietta Maria and Lucy, like they have this like on again, off again friendship. At one point, Henrietta Maria um, presented a petition to her husband to get rid of Lucy, which is like very Tracy Flick of her. But Charles also did not um, take Lucy on as a lover, as far as we know. And eventually Henrietta Maria was like, okay, she stopped being quite so wildly jealous and she came to become fond of Lucy. 
end. So, you know, this sort of was only good things for Lucy because being the best friend of the queen meant that she got to continue to be just like the gorgeous, most popular woman at court, um, inspiring yet more poets and musicians to write odes to her and to adore her. So we're going to get to the spy stuff real soon, but just bear in mind that like, this is just Lucy Hay living her life. Like she's just like so smart and so capable and so interesting. And she's not really given any outlet to use her talents except just like courtly intrigue. And she's being like the best at courtly intrigue. Like she's becoming best friends with the queen. She's sleeping with George Villiers. She is with George Villiers and she's making a good deal out of it, even if that wasn't what she wanted to be doing. She's married to James Hay. Like she's doing well, but there's not a lot of opportunities for her to really show what she's made of basically because we've gotten past the gunpowder plot scenario but if you know your british history you know that we are inching ever closer to the whole oliver cromwell overthrowing the monarchy scenario but we need to take just a brief detour right now into the land of the three musketeers literally the book the three musketeers so Thanks super much, by the way, to my friend Annika for helping to explain this plot point to me, because basically what happens is there's a character in the Three Musketeers books called Milady de Winter, who is this amazing lady spy. And part of her story was inspired. Um, Alexandre Dumas, the author of the Three Musketeers, found some documents that are explaining some stuff about Lucy Hay. And so he took little pieces of that to make this badass character Milady de Winter. And the main thing that he borrowed from Lucy's legend is a story that, because there's already a thing called the Affair of the Diamond Necklace, we can't call it that. Um, that's a past episode of this podcast. You can learn about that. That's the whole Jean de Lamotte situation. Lucy and George Villiers are lovers, but George Villiers is not monogamous in his being lovers with her. He's also married to someone else. He's just like overall scum of the earth, dirtbag guy. And he also had a huge crush on the French queen who is named Anne of Austria. And so Anne of Austria was into it. And so she gave George, this is where it gets a little confusing, a diamond necklace, I think. So the French king gave Anne of Austria this diamond necklace that was comprised of 12 jewels. And so in some translations, it calls it 12 studs. So some people think that they're talking about earrings, but I think they're talking about individual jewels on a necklace tied together with a ribbon because that is how jewelry was put together back then, apparently. So Anne of Austria, like George Villiers, she thought he was so good looking and he was, objectively speaking, even though inside he was just like a gross monster of a person. And so she gave him the diamond necklace her husband had given her. But I think that wasn't just like, here's a necklace, George, you can wear it. I think it was like, here's some diamonds, you can like, whatever with them. I don't know, get money for them or something. Anyway, so this part is unclear to me as to what is true and what is just part of the Three Musketeers story. So I'm going to like exclude the whole Cardinal Richelieu of it all because I don't 100% understand what his dealings were in the actual real life story. But in the actual real life story, What happened is that, allegedly, Lucy was tasked with getting the diamonds back from George to return them to the queen so that the king wouldn't find out 
that the queen had given them to George. You might need to like diagram that out for yourself or something. So basically Lucy, who is just like this kind of bored woman with like these amazing spy skills and nothing to do with them. She's like, takes on this job to steal these diamonds back from George. So it becomes this whole sort of like jewel thief scenario where Lucy needs to steal the diamonds back from George without him noticing and get them back to Anne of Austria so that her husband doesn't know that she's given them to George. It's all sort of like she needs to steal the diamonds from one place, bring them back to another place. And who knows if it happened or not, because this is the other thing about researching a woman in history. There's not always a lot written about them, but when you're researching a woman who's also a spy, who's really good at being a spy, a lot of what she did is extra not written down. She allegedly was able to return the diamonds back to the queen. And this was all a similar thing is a major plot point in the novel, The Three Musketeers, which was written like 200 years later. So Lucy's clearly keeping herself busy, what with her lover, potentially other lovers. I want that for her, but who knows? And then she becomes a widow in 1636. So she is aged basically 36 years old. And she is super rich because her husband had been super rich. And now she doesn't have, I mean, not that he was really cramping her style that much, but now not just men looking to be her lover, but people who wanted to maybe marry her were sort of rolling in. And this is where things are, um, like if we're doing a countdown to the whole overthrow of the British monarchy, like it's just getting closer and closer. Like all the little chess pieces are all coming in into the right places. So one of the men who became one of her lovers, allegedly, was a guy named Thomas Wentworth, who was part of the House of Parliament. And so everything was already pretty um, us or them vis-a-vis Parliament at this point. Effectively, and this is not a part of history I've studied very much at all, but from what I understand, the royal family to this point in England had been very absolute monarchy. Like they got to decide everything and the parliament just kind of like stamped and was like, sure, that's great. But the parliament wanted more and more powers and the king wanted to not give them the powers. And so there were these two factions, the people who supported the parliament and the people who supported the royal family. And so at this point, Thomas Wentworth, Lucy's latest lover, he had been pro-parliament And then he switched to pro-royals. And that's the other thing that makes this, studying this situation confusing is people flip-flopped around quite a bit. But basically being pro-royal family became an increasingly unpopular way to be. And eventually Thomas was arrested and sentenced to death. Lucy kind of saw which way the wind was blowing. And so she just sort of delicately removed herself from the situation. Because if you remember what happened to her father, R.I.P., the wizard Earl, he died a bit ago, just living his life. Not gross in the same way as George Villiers, but also just like not a great guy. Anyway, Lucy had seen how her father was sent to jail for 16 years just for being friends with somebody who did something possibly treasonous. So she wasn't going to let Thomas bring her down. So she sort of just like backtracked out of Thomas Wentworth's life is kind of like Thomas Wentworth. What? I don't, I don't know that man, etc. And then she took as her new lover, allegedly, I mean, her new, her new companion, alleged lover, 
is um, basically Thomas's arch enemy, who was a guy named John Pym, who was on the pro-parliament side of things. And so at this point, like you're just like, she can't stop herself. And it's kind of amazing. So her career as a secret double agent slash spy kicks into high gear. She was sharing information from the king to Pym and the other parliamentarians. Um, at one point, crucially, she told the, them that the king was onto them and he's going to arrest them. And her warning them meant that they had time to escape. So that was sort of, keep that in mind later when we're talking about her significance. So her advance warning allowed them to escape. The English Civil War broke out in 1642 and the parliamentarians were against the royal family. And this was like literally a war in England. So Lucy at this point was very much caught in the middle of this whole situation because of her relationship with Pym and because of how she just helped him out. Like she, it seems like she was more on the parliamentary side than the royal side, but she kind of held her cards close to her chest. Like even, (laughs) even to this day, it's unclear, like literally to historians studying her now, like which side her allegiance is truly on. And I kind of think she was just team chaos. She just liked going back and forth and maybe didn't really have an allegiance either way. But basically, as the war progressed, the pro-parliament side, which she had been seemingly a member of for a while, like basically both sides thought she was on their side pretending to be on the other side, but she was kind of on both sides kind of on neither sides and I mean she's doing stuff like she was writing letters she was like housing people for secret meetings she was like writing letters in code she was using like invisible ink like she was she was doing amazing stuff and she was like fully involved in the whole thing and so part of why she was able to do as much as she was able to do all the men were suspicious of all the other men and no one was really suspicious of the women and Lucy was known for being clever and beautiful etc. But she was also sort of seen as this sort of like vain, sort of um, self-absorbed, selfish person. You know, this woman who wore the mask for so long when she had the smallpox scars and no one really took her seriously, which she used to her advantage, like all good ladies buys. Oliver Cromwell is this guy who, like King Charles I was taken, his head was chopped off. Oliver Cromwell became the new sort of head of England, but not the king. And his faction was just becoming more and more sort of like fanatically Puritan. And that was just not Lucy's style at all. And so she seems to have like fully decided at this point to become a spy for the team royals. And I totally forgot to mention that well before this was all happening, just FYI, like this was even before Lucy was widowed. George Villiers was in fact murdered by a disgruntled army officer. So if you're just wondering why he isn't in the story anymore, he basically was killed for being a horrible person. FYI. So English Civil War is happening. Lucy is doing stuff like she's raising funds for the royal family by selling jewelry. But she also took on a role as sort of a messenger between her her frenemy, Queen Henrietta Maria, in exile and the royalists who supported their side. So with the king being dead, at this point. Oh, and side note, the children of Charles I were being raised by Lucy's sister, uh, Dorothy, for a while, because she was like a trusted person. So Dorothy is still, like I mentioned before, 
they were so close to each other and they were, and there's not a lot of space in this podcast to get into that whole situation. There's another book I'll recommend to you that talks about that a bit more. But basically Lucy, every time something tragic happened to her in her life, she had a, she gave birth to a child who died. She fell ill a number of times. She always went back to be with her sister, Dorothy. Like she and Dorothy were like super tight, super close. And Dorothy was sort of like keeping the home fires burning while Lucy was just running around being an amazing lady spy. Anyway, so about two months after Oliver Cromwell became the head of the New England, um, Lucy was arrested for her work, working for the royal family, and she was imprisoned in, guess where? Tower of London, the same place where she had been held by her father when she was 18 years old. But now it wasn't, things were different now. She didn't have like a luxury apartment situation, not like when she was being mentored by tits out Frances Howard. She was just sort of there. It was depressing. It sucked. And she had had these health problems for a while, quote unquote, hypochondria, which could be so many various different health problems that can occur to a woman and being held in a shitty jail cell in this kind of stressful situation where you might be killed at any point didn't really help with her health problems. So even in there, even though she was having these health problems, um, she still toughed it out. She was interrogated, but she never gave up any information because she was tough as nails. She wrote secret letters in code back and forth with uh, the new, with Prince Charles, who was the kind of the figurehead for the royalist cause because King Charles I had been executed. His son, Prince Charles, was in exile. And so Lucy was communicating with him. She used her brother as an intermediary and some of the other guards as well because she was able to charm them. Even the jailers were, who were like, oh, we're totally Puritans. And Lucy was like, I'm also totally a Puritan. And they're like, we totally believe you. And she's like, can you take this blank piece of paper to this other person and in return, bring me back a blank piece of paper? And they did. And, but it was invisible ink and you just like, like in knives out, you just put like flame behind it and you can read, read the letters. Is that a spoiler for knives out? Sorry. She was in jail for 18 shitty months, but she kept scheming even while she was in there. And she was released from prison basically on parole at the end of this. She was actually released to go and stay with her sister, Dorothy. The country was still under the control of the parliamentarians, but Lucy was at this point just seemingly, seemingly, think, I don't know if she's a spy, but she seemed to be supporting the restoration of the monarchy. And so she became an, like, even though she just got out of the Tower of London where she'd been for 18 months and she was having like even worse symptoms, she wasn't able to do so much, you know, like in the field running around lady spy work, but she did a lot of work behind the scenes, um, helping arrange things for people, writing letters, etc. And she was instrumental in helping to eventually restore Prince Charles to the throne where he became King Charles II. So... On May 1660 was when the restoration of the monarchy officially happened. And then six months later, Lucy passed away, aged about 60 years old. To learn more about this whole situation, which there's so much I didn't have time to get into here, because this is just one little, little podcast, but just trust me, there's lots to know. So there is a book that is called Court Lady and Country Wife by Lita Rose Betcherman which is where I learned a bunch about Lucy and also her sister, Dorothy. And then the book about lady spies is called Invisible Agents, Women and Espionage in 17th Century Britain by Nadine Ackerman. So it's literally about women spies 
in 17th century Britain. And it, it talks about Lucy Hay quite a bit, obviously. And it's time to get into the scoring of it all. So Lucy Hay, scandaliciousness. This is interesting. We've got the 18 years old going to get married. Her father keeps her in jail, mentored by tits out Francis Howard, gets married, takes a lover or is taken as a lover or somehow is able to co-use George Villiers and not be destroyed by him, but actually to use it to her advantage to spy on the queen, then takes the two parliamentary lovers. Her scandaliciousness is pretty high. I have to say, I'm going to give her, I think, a seven for scandaliciousness, for scheminess, flat out 10. I mean, she hatched even more schemes than we'll ever know about because she was so good at them. She was a spy and we'll never find out what she did because she was so good at it. I mean, she like all of her schemes, like at first it was just sort of like high schoolish stuff, just like scheming about like who will be her lover or like spying on the queen and stuff and just like wearing the best outfits, etc. I want to mention also, I, in part of my research, I found out that during, in around 1620, there was a fashion craze of women dressing sort of masculine to the point where some women even like chopped off their hair in sort of like a 1920s moment, like a bob moment. Like they were wearing like leather, like to the elbow sort of like workman's gloves with her dresses and Lucy Hay was all over it. Anyway, she's amazing. Style is not one of the things, but anyway, her scheminess was unsurpassed. I think she had countless numbers of schemes and it seems like they're all amazing. Significance. Like all good spies, we don't know exactly how many things she did. We do know that she passed along that message to Pym that made it so that he so the parliamentarians weren't arrested by the king, which ultimately isn't what she wanted because she seemed to switch sides to the royalists. But if she hadn't passed along that message, the royalists could have been stopped. And then the whole Oliver Cromwell situation might not have happened, which was like a pretty substantially important thing that happened in English history. At the same time, she wasn't like the queen of a country who like took over another country or something. But the significance, I think... We don't know exactly what she did, but the behind the scenes significance feels pretty high to me. I'm going to give her a six for significance. And then the last category is the sexism, quote unquote, bonus, or how much did being a woman hold her back? And this is like similar to some of the other women we've looked at. I feel like she saw that she's living in this misogynistic, patriarchal culture and she was like, okay, this is what's going on. And I am going to find a way to like lean into this and twist it around and use it to my advantage. Like she's sort of like a Scarlet Pimpernel situation where if she just like played up the fact that she was this sort of like vapid, silly person, nobody would suspect she was secretly this amazing spy. So it's almost like she used sexism to her advantage. I don't know if it was a detriment to her, except for the whole father putting her in jail thing. Hmm. When the whole George Villiers potentially forcing her to be his mistress. I am going to give her a five for the sexism bonus. So the total then, this looks pretty good for her. Um, let me see, 17. 28 is her score, which actually is the second highest score of the whole season. 
Elizabeth Bathory got 29, Lucy Hay 28, uh, Jean de Lamont 27, Francis Howard 26, and then Carolina Brunswick and Mary Toft both tied at a 20. These have been some scandalous stories we've been looking at this season. So I want to let you know that this is the sixth and final episode of season one of Vulgar History, but don't be sad because season one, like season one, the theme was will behave women don't make history podcasts. There is going to be season two, numerous more seasons after that, each with their own fun theme, but we're going to take a little break now for the holidays. But I do have some announcements to give you, including the fact that um, if you join the Patreon, I'm going to be doing, I think, between now and the next, now in season two, I'm going to be posting some mini episodes. And so they're going to be called, I think they're going to be called, so this asshole, and they're going to be sort of like five, 10 minutes, just looking at some of the assholes from some of the stories that we've been looking at this season. For instance, from this one, it'll be like a little look at George Villiers, monster human, maybe also looking at the wizard Earl. What was his deal? If we're looking back at some other episodes, Nathaniel St. Andre, thirsty bitch who lived for drama. Basically, there's going to be short episodes because I'm not, I'm not a men's historian. There's lots of people who do that. I'm a women's historian. But some of these assholes, like just explaining kind of what their deal was, I think sort of helps fill out the story of these women and what they were up against. But the women, they get the full hour episodes. So this asshole, five, 10 minutes, um, mini episodes. And so you can find my Patreon, which is at patreon.com slash Writer. Um, there's other places where you can find us. So Vulgar History is on Instagram. We are on Twitter. Both of them are at Vulgar History or Vulgar History Pod. This podcast is now on, I think, most of the podcast apps. So it would be awesome if you could subscribe and rate and review, as people say, on other podcasts. And I'm going to be working on the mini episodes. I'm going to be finalizing plans for season two coming up pretty soon. So if you follow me on social media or on the Patreon, you can get updates on that sort of stuff. I also do lots of writing. You can find my writing at annfosterwriter.com. And then I've also made some merch. Um, I made a, a different product for each episode this season. The one for the uh, Lucy Hay episode is just a picture of her. And then just sort of covering her eyes, it says, lady spy, because she was just an amazing lady spy. And I love the fact that we'll never truly know everything about her because she was a good lady spy. Uh, this is Vulgar History, and my name is Ann Foster, and I'll see you for season two. Vulgar History is hosted, written, and researched by Ann Foster and edited by Christina Lumagi. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. 
Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.